Would you join me opening up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Blue Pew Bible uh, in front of you, you want to follow along with us there, uh, you can find it on page 807. But we're looking forward to uh, the rest of this morning and this week, uh, Tuesday, the kind of conclusion of our Advent season and series on Christmas Eve, as you've heard, uh, we'll be doing two services here, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., um, identical services. Uh, the uh, video that AJ uh, created for us leading to each of these Advent sermons, that passage he's read will be the passage that we'll be digging into in the uh, devotional that I'll be giving at that service. And uh, there'll be a component for the kids where they'll all, you know, uh, uh, child care will be through age five, preschool. And then kindergarten and up will be all with us in the service. Miss Megan will have a component in that service for them. Um, and even I'm just reminded of even seeing them sing this morning. Um, and then often when Megan gives uh, children's messages that uh, the simplicity of those messages and those lyrics uh, coming out of the mouth of children, sometimes for the uh, you know, children's minds end up being the most productive things that we hear as adults, right? That we're kind of listening in, and yet the most kind of clear-cut gospel presentations are oftentimes in those messages. And so we're looking forward to that as part of the service as well. I hope uh, if you'll be in town that you'll be uh, joining us for one of those services, uh, bringing some people with you. And uh, regardless of whether you'll be here or not, I do just ask, even though over the next 48 hours, that you just be praying alongside us for that service uh, and those services, um, knowing that many uh, we'll be coming through these doors, sitting in these pews who don't know Christ, and they're coming because they have to, or they're coming because it's what you do on Christmas Eve, and, and I'm always very careful. I don't want to shame people for that. I don't want to condemn people for that. I want to make sure our tone is right, that we're just happy that they're here, whatever the motivation is, uh, but our prayer fervently is that God would just engage their minds, uh, would stir their hearts in a fresh way through this kind of very familiar Christmas story. And um, as I've just been preparing and praying through this Advent season, um, and I think I'm biased, and I've been thinking about peace, obviously, for the last month, pretty much every single day, uh, but I, I don't know that there's a more relatable desire that people have in life than the desire for peace, right? Uh, you might hear it like this, uh, a desire we have for a peace of mind, how great would that be with, with our lives, um, with our thoughts, with our relationships, families, um, with our respective situations? What would it like to have peace? And so I think the way we kind of live throughout the year is our antennas are always up to kind of um, think about how we can enhance the presence of peace in our lives. And so uh, you think about all the things you hear, you consume in the world, whether just in conversations or whether on social media or whether you're watching TV, and, and we hear these things, these kind of hooks of, of um, here's the one thing that will bring a peace of mind. Here are three ways to increase restful sleep. Here's three ways to remove all your anxiety. Just click here, right? Or don't go away. We'll tell you when we get back from this commercial break. And we, we hear that enough, and we're kind of indoctrinated that to enough, where we hear it, and we know it's not really legit. We know it's probably not going to actually be the one thing we need. But isn't it true? There's this little tug, like, but what if? Like, maybe I will just hang around, or maybe I will just click. I can exit out real quick if I realize it's, but our antennas are up. What if this is the one thing I'm missing? that I can do, that I can incorporate, that will give me the presence of peace. 
Well, in our series through the first three weeks, I tried to, if you've noticed, hammer home pretty much one singular point. One singular point that that peace is found in a person. And his name is Jesus. And, and I've tried to approach that from all different angles in the Bible. So we started in Genesis, and we saw at the very beginning that the reason why there's a need for peace and how that traces away and finds its way to Jesus. And then we were in Ezekiel, uh, kind of one of the Old Testament prophets, where we saw Israel waiting for peace and how it traces its way and finds its way in Jesus. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 1, where we saw Zechariah give the way of peace, again, tracing its way and finding its way in Jesus, that he is the ultimate answer, which is true um, of every verse, every chapter, every page in your Bible, every promise that you see finds its fulfillment in Jesus, right? That is the most exhilarating part of Bible study, whether on your own or with others, of how does this passage, wherever I am in the Bible, point to, find its fulfillment in Jesus, right? That's what makes Bible study exciting, not a chore, not burdensome, but something that I actually can kind of use my brain, the Holy Spirit kind of giving me illumination to see how does this point to Jesus. That is the best part of Bible study. And so we've solidified that, I hope. True peace. We're talking about true peace. With God, it's going to happen through Jesus Christ. And that's the secret, right? It's faith. It's not worked for. It's received. It's not earned. It's given as a gift by God. So that's where we were the last three weeks. And this last Sunday of Advent season, I want to, come, I want to approach peace from a different angle. I want to think about something a little bit different. Not just how we can obtain peace with God through Christ, but how can we experience the presence of peace day in and day out? All right, let me put it in the form of a question. Does the coming of Christ and the gospel, does that just promise that you will experience peace someday, like in eternity, in heaven, or does it actually promise peace for today? Maybe I'll put it another way. Is the reality of peace in our life merely theological or is it practical? Can I experience peace today, tomorrow morning, January 15th of next year? Is that possible? That's what I want to answer this morning. And we're going to get there from a familiar passage that we often hear this time of year. It's going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As many of you know, of the four gospel writers, Matthew and Luke are the only two that give the 
birth narrative, right? The so-called Christmas story. And what we know as the Christmas story is really a combination of both of their accounts because they emphasize very different aspects of this one event. Uh, Last week in Luke 1, we saw the angel appear to Zechariah. Luke also gives the story of an angel appearing to Mary and then Mary with Elizabeth and then angels appearing to the shepherds. Matthew tells you none of that. Matthew doesn't mention Zechariah or shepherds or the account with Mary. But he does write about the angel speaking to Joseph. And then he'll talk about angels speaking to the wise men. And then an angel speaking to Joseph again after he was born. None of which are in Luke. And this is just a side fun fact. All the times Matthew talks, uh, gives the account of angels talking to people, it's always in dreams. Luke, not in dreams. I don't know why. I just wanted to tell you that. All right? So <laughs> figure it out. Tell me if you do. Um, but it's one event, this Christmas story, but two totally different perspectives. And, and that's okay. We don't have a problem with that because that's one of the reasons we have four Gospels. They are four biographical portraits of one man's life. And they emphasize different things based upon uh, their backgrounds, based upon who's writing it, based upon who they're writing to. And I think um, we're okay with this because we understand this is true with any historical figure. Um, If you or someone you know have a fascination with like one historical figure or event, um, you have no problem if somebody comes out with a new biography of that person. I know one person in our church loves James Madison. I won't tell you her name, but she loves it, and it's awesome to hear about. Not the school, like the president, James Madison. And there are all these different biographies, and you know what? If another one came out tomorrow, it would be on her Christmas list. Amazon Prime by Christmas Eve. Because we like getting unique perspectives from different angles on this one person, on this one event. And so in Matthew's gospel, he focuses on Joseph. I think one of the reasons is because Joseph is the one who's in the line of David from the genealogy early in Matthew. And so Jesus comes through the line of David through his adoptive father, Joseph. And Joseph is engaged to Mary. And and the, the word in ESV is betrothed. And a betrothal, again, many of you know this, is like an engagement on steroids as we know it today. Because there's one key difference than a typical engagement. In Jewish law, you needed a certificate of divorce to break a betrothal. It was this legally binding document that enhanced and made an engagement. And so they are engaged, but they have not yet consummated their marriage. Joseph is careful, uh, Matthew is careful to tell us, which means Mary is still a virgin. And from Luke's gospel, we know at this point the angel had told Mary that she will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to the Son of the Most High. Now, wouldn't you have wanted to be a fly on the wall when Mary had to tell Joseph this news? Um, Hey, Joseph, something happened. We need to talk. When do you want to do that? Right? And when someone close in your life, a spouse, a child, a boss, a best friend, somebody important, whenever they say to you, hey, we need to talk, Nine times out of ten, that's not going to go well, right? It's something hard is going to be said. And they get together, picture this scene. Joseph, love you, love you. (laughs) You know how we've been talking in our 
premarital counseling sessions that we need to keep God at the center of our marriage? Well, he is. Right? It's the ultimate good news, bad news. Our three-year-old daughter is so into the good news, bad news, right? I got good news, I got bad news. What do you want first? Right? And she'll be like, the bad news is I spilled all my water. The good news is you can clean it up. Right? It's like, okay, you get, the, okay, we're a little off here, but she's, she's trying. But Mary, hey, Joseph, I got good news, I got bad news. Bad news, I'm pregnant. The good news, I'm still a virgin. God's the father. Like, we don't know how that conversation went. Like, I'm very curious how it went. Like, did Joseph in here, did he fly off the handle? Did he get angry? Or we see the kind of person that just gets dead silent when really bad news comes. Did he need to go for a walk to gather his thoughts afterwards? We don't know. But here's what we do know from Matthew. Two things. One, Joseph is a just man, which I presume means he seeks to do the right thing in life. He's not selfish or cowardly. He's a just man. And then secondly, we know he did not believe her. Because while he wanted to divorce her quietly so Mary would not be put to shame, he was still planning on divorcing her. So he's a just man, but Joseph did not believe Mary. But we do know that he was at least struggling with the decision because verse 20 tells us as he considered these things, there's no finality there, he's still considering these things. As he considered, he falls asleep and an angel appears to him in a dream. Joseph, do not fear to take her as your wife. She was telling the truth. She's with child and it is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, and it's a boy, right? Like how many of you have had an angel at your gender reveal party, okay? (laughs) It's a boy, shall call him Jesus, for he will save people, his people, from their sins. This is fulfillment from the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin shall conceive and they shall call him Emmanuel. And Matthew is kind enough to translate that for us, parentheses, which means God with us. And from there, you know where things go. Joseph wakes up, he does as the angel commands, he gets married to Mary but does not consummate this marriage until she gives birth, and it's a boy, and they name him Jesus. So that's a story, familiar story. Here's a different angle I want to approach with it today. Focus the rest of our time this morning. The relationship between the Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, and the presence of peace. When you read the Bible, you should pay careful attention. What does the author want me to focus on? One of the things that an author will tell you I want you to focus on is he'll repeat himself. And in this passage, Matthew repeated himself, especially with the role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for she conceived from the Holy Spirit. So if somebody would ask you a question, okay, Mary is a virgin, that's what you believe, how did she get pregnant? Did she just wake up one morning and boom, morning sickness? No. She is pregnant because the Holy Spirit generated life within her womb. Luke wrote that she was overshadowed by the Spirit and was with child. Just like in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit hovered over the waters. 
And then he purposefully translates Emmanuel for your readers. So again, you're paying attention in your own Bible study. You're going, why did he translate that for us? Maybe because it was important. He translates this because he's writing the gospel in Greek. He quotes Isaiah 9, which is written in Hebrew. And so he has a Hebrew word, Emmanuel, a word his readers might not be familiar with. So he tells us, oh, that means God with us. And again, he says it because it's important. That the biggest miracle in the Christmas story is not that a virgin gave birth to a son. The biggest miracle in the Christmas story is that a holy God and the holy God of the universe dwells amongst an unholy people. The word becomes flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And so the presence of peace, something we all want, we all think about, we all pursue, it is a reality today for God's people because God is with us and God is with us today because of the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, so that's your thesis. I want to unpack that with three ways. Three ways today a believer can experience the presence of peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit each and every day. Number one, Emmanuel brings salvation. So so the angel, in telling Joseph that Mary is pregnant, he tells Joseph one thing about this boy. Of all the things he could have said about Jesus, the life he's going to live, the people he's going to help, the healings he's going to do, the power he has, he tells him one thing in this dream. And what's he telling him? That this boy will save his people from their sins. And if you read closely, again, we're reading closely here, the angel doesn't say he will save people from their sins. He says his people. This is pretty powerful, right? This is the mystery and the power of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully man. He is born fully man. He has the full range of human characteristics that we have physically and emotionally and mentally. And he is growing in a womb like all of you did in the same way that everybody who walks this planet did. And yet, he has people. This baby, not even fully formed in the womb, has people who need to be saved from their sin because he is also fully God. He has the full range of divine characteristics, the power, the command, the authority, the morality, the knowledge that he will save his people from their sins. So hang with me here. Um, That word, his, is that talking about Jesus, God the Son? Or is that talking about God the Father who is sending him? Or is he talking about God the Holy Spirit who generated the life within? You know what the answer is? Yes. Welcome to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's mysterious and it's fascinating, but hear me, it is clear in the Bible. One thing we should not call the Trinity is confusing. It's not confusing. It's mysterious. And there's a difference. Because it's a mystery clearly revealed. God is one. In three persons. And Emmanuel, God with us, is the only way salvation can be made possible. That the Father plans and the Son executes and the Spirit applies. That that the Father's plan from before the foundations of the world had been set. Think about this. Before sin even entered the world, his plan was to send the Son into the world to restore the peace that would be lost. To make peace through salvation, between the Father and sinners by, by, by sending his son to live the perfect life that we could not live, that Peter just prayed about, by dying the death we deserved on the cross, 
by offering forgiveness for those who believe in him. But admittedly, in my own preaching, there's often a missing element to this idea of salvation. How does this become true for me? Like, how does it go from Jesus forgiving sinners in general on the cross to forgiving my sin? I understand it might be true out there for others, but how can that be true for me? And the answer is the often overlooked work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says in John 6 that it is the Spirit who gives life. And the Spirit applies the work of salvation through Christ to believers, regenerating them, regenerating them and equipping them to then put their faith in Jesus Christ. Where am I getting that? Many places. I'll give you one. Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Do you see it? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, let's connect some dots here. How did Mary get pregnant with Jesus? The Holy Spirit generated life within her womb. And how are believers saved through Jesus Christ? By the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts through Jesus. And by the Spirit, we have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Emmanuel, God with us. That's number one. Number two, Emmanuel fuels obedience. So back to Joseph here. Joseph is told this news from the angel. He wakes up from the dream, and what's he do? Was he forced by the angel? Did the angel rewire his brain to make him take Mary as his wife? No. Did Joseph take a couple weeks to say, you know what? I got to weigh the pros and cons here. We're going to be a laughingstock at best. We're going to be accused at worst by everybody around us. Con. God's son. Pro. Did he take a couple weeks? Make a list. No. He woke up and he obeyed. And it shows, I think, the display of simple obedience, which is so important and I would say so often overlooked in the lives of believers. That when God saves your soul, he gives you new life, totally by his grace. You are a new creation. And you are empowered then to obey his commandments for his glory and your joy. So he frees you not to just do whatever you want. He frees you to obey him and his word. And this will shock nobody here. Obedience, hard. It can be really hard because we are redeemed, but we're not yet glorified. And we still have these desires of the flesh. And so the question is, how can we actually do this? How is this made possible? Great question. John 14, 25 and 26, listen to this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There he is again. The Holy Spirit so we're keeping track here. Not only does he apply salvation to your soul, 
He is sent by Jesus to indwell all believers, to teach believers, to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has commanded us. Emmanuel, God with us. This becomes the literal reality through the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Spirit. Not just some, all believers put their faith in Jesus Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. This is a big change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is there because the Spirit is eternal, because he's co-eternal with the Father and the Son. But when he comes upon God's people, it's an anointing. He comes on God's people. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes into God's people in an indwelling. And by God's grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in faithful obedience to God's word, even when it's hard. So when the desires of the flesh are tempted, think about what is your biggest temptation in life? What's the sin? Maybe other people know. They probably don't know. What's the thing that just really tempts you the most? You know it's the hardest for you to obey. You have that in your mind? What's that desire? The only way you have a chance to resist that temptation is if you replace it with a greater desire. The only way you will say no to a desire of the flesh is if you replace it with a greater desire. And the Bible will call that the desire of the spirit. To walk in faithfulness, walk in holiness. And we don't do that perfectly. This is sanctification. Sanctification, a lifelong, progressive, growing in Christ-likeness. And, and here's probably the hardest thing I'll say in this sermon. Some of us treat peace and the feeling of peace like it's the wind. And we're just hoping it's going to blow our way. And we're just sitting back going, man, it'd be great to feel some peace right now. And we just kind of wait for it to happen. When the Bible tells us the pathway of peace day to day is found along the path of faithful obedience. I want to say that carefully because I don't want to make it seem like I'm saying something I'm not. I'm not saying peace is earned. I'm not saying it's dependent upon works, right? If there's anything that we do, we are a grace-based church. Salvation by grace alone. He sustains us by grace alone. Peace is given by grace. But there is a responsibility by believers to walk in the Spirit, which provides us the presence of peace day to day. And I wonder if a lot of us are not experiencing peace because we're not walking in faithful obedience to his word. Sanctification affirms two things. One, we will never be able to say we are completely without sin. None of us will ever be able to say in this life we are without sin, no desires of the flesh, no issue. And then second, sanctification affirms that there is no sin that can completely defeat us or that we will give up trying to defeat this one sin. And God's grace, his justification, is the grounds and the strength we have for our sanctification. Him saving us is the strength we have to battle against sin by the Spirit within us. And it's affirming that the power within you is greater than the power in this world. And we are called to use this strength, to deploy this strength. You won't do it perfectly, but you can do it effectively. You can walk in the Spirit. Let me put it this way with an illustration. Um, it reminds me 
how many believers live their lives like uh, a former college basketball teammate of mine played basketball. Stick with me here. I won't say his name in case you were happy to hear this. But I had a guy I played with in college who was a beast in the weight room. Just cut up, big, tall, heavy lifter, any kind of lifting exercise, um, he would be first on the team. Bench, squat, anything explosive, power clean, strongest guy on the team in the weight room. But then he'd get on the court, and the guy got pushed around by guards, like guards could box him out. He'd get the ball in the post with somebody much smaller with him, and he couldn't back him down and score. And the coaches were kind of like confused by him, to put it, say it the least. And they would constantly say to him, use the strength you have in you. We see it in the weight room. You have to deploy it on the court. Because while he was strong lifting weights, he was weak in playing basketball. And I wonder if this is true for many of us believers, that we have the Spirit within us. The Bible tells us this. You believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have the Spirit within you. But you're not using it or deploying that Spirit in your life. And so you're playing soft. You're living soft, so to speak. And evidence of that is getting caught up in these habitual sins that bring chaos into our life and not peace. And a Christian who is not walking in obedience, is the, you're in the ultimate lose-lose situation. Because when you sin, you can't even really enjoy the sin because the Holy Spirit's convicting you, because the Holy Spirit's within you. But then you can't even enjoy the sin like the world enjoys the sin. Because the Holy Spirit's within you, you know what I mean? Like, you're in the ultimate lose-lose situation. You're not walking in faith and obedience to the Lord, but then you're also not even enjoying the sin like the world does. The Spirit enables faithful obedience. And then number three, Emmanuel generates courage. The presence of God in our lives not only gives us the ability to obey, it gives us the ability to live courageously. Not in fear, but with courage. Okay, let's go back to Joseph. Joseph, confidently, courageously, takes Mary to be his wife when she is pregnant. He courageously abstains from knowing her until the baby is born. He courageously defends against any of the onslaught he received culturally or from people around him, friends and family. He brings her to Bethlehem. And you think, man, if he was obedient with that, everything must have just gone well for him. Wrong. He was not done making hard decisions. If we were to keep reading into Matthew 2, the baby is born, and Joseph gets a dream, an angel appearing to him in a dream again. And now the angel says, after the baby is born, Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. You just led your wife, very pregnant wife, on a long journey to your hometown, and you couldn't even score her a room to have the baby in. So you had to have the baby in a stable. And then after the baby is born, you can't even go home to Nazareth, but you have to evacuate quickly before the king's men catches them to kill the baby, and you have to go be refugees in Egypt for an extended period of time. Does that sound peaceful to anybody? We're talking about peace this Advent season. Does that sound peaceful? Do these circumstances lend themselves for you to be jealous of Joseph's life? How comfortable he must have been. 
No, it's not a peaceful circumstance. But Joseph has the courage to lead his family through a difficult circumstance because of his unyielding faith in the one who is leading him. And so the presence of peace in our lives is not measured by comfort. We often associate the two together. Peaceful is comfort. But rather, the presence of peace is measured by the presence of God in our lives no matter the circumstance. And I think it's true based on physical circumstances that happen to us. If we were to go around the room, all the circumstances we'd in, I think we'd probably be shocked at what some people are going through right now. But I'm also talking about emotional circumstances that occur within us, in our own brains, in our own minds. We, we talked a, sep- a few times in Philippians this past fall about the reality of anxiety and depression in general. I'd say in this area in particular. And how important it is to say, as believers... It's not definitively sinful to experience anxiety and or depression. That we are in a fallen world. And that is a state that is strong. And it's a state that faithful believers can fall into. And let's be honest, right? Depression is something that all people experience sometimes. And some some people experience all the time. And there are situational aspects to it. And there are neurological aspects to it. And so as we articulate that reality, we also articulate alongside of that that none of these things can rob us of our peace we have with Christ. The peace that Philippians says surpasses understanding. So in the world's view, when they talk about peace, click here for this peace of mind. Stay through this commercial break to experience three ways to experience peace freedom from anxiety, they associate peace with comfort. But in God's view, peace surpasses comfort or discomfort, and it's provided through the presence of the Spirit. Where am I getting that? John 14, 27, the verse right after the one we read earlier, of Jesus sending the Spirit, we read this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How can Jesus say that in the same book, in the same conversation where he says, the world's going to hate you? It's going to be hard. The reason is because this is not just future tense. This isn't hold on and you'll get peace someday. But the presence of peace is available to you right now through the Holy Spirit. And we need it, man, because this life is a battle. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities of this age and this world. And hear me, that battle has ultimately been won. Do you believe that? So the promise we have is Emmanuel, God with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And that promise is what generates courage for the believer. So next time you're on social media, or you're watching TV, or you're listening to a podcast, and you hear somebody say, here's the key to peace, you can look at it, you can listen to it, and you can smile, because you already know the answer. That the secret of peace is not comfort in this world. The secret of peace is Emmanuel, God with us. I want to close by sharing 
a portion of a sermon that was preached by Charles Spurgeon on Christmas Eve, 1854. 165 years ago. That's what he says. It'll be on the screen. Emmanuel. It is wisdom's mystery. God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. God with us. It is health's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let him come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name, God with us. This is the promise of the presence of peace that Advent brings. This is what we celebrate. God did it. He brings salvation, he fuels obedience, and he generates courage. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray.